0: You have a Bible? Why don't you turn to Revelation chapter 3, please? Revelation chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 7 through 13, and the message entitled, The Loving Church, Philadelphia. What an eye opener we've had as we've seen how the churches de- deviated and corrupted themselves so soon after their inception. Therefore, as we have uh, seen the messages of these seven churches, Um, They are very applicable for all whoever hear the gospel, not just the church or the churches, the seven of them, in the day of John. The seven messages, as we said, to the seven churches are representative of four things, a local church in John's day. They were literal churches. Then a period of church history, which we give to you, which prophetically the men of the church have seen so far, And thirdly, the type of congregation that can and will exist throughout the church age. And fourthly, is the type of Christian in their own personal relationship to the Lord. So we can all examine the type of Christian we are and what kind of church we're in and judge ourselves. And if there needs to be some adjustments and some acknowledging that we do so before the Lord and that he take care of that. Now the pattern again of these seven letters to the churches... Is consistent with few exceptions. There's the proclamation, the commendation, then there's the condemnation, the exhortation, and the application. And only Sardis and Philadelphia here do not have condemnation. They're the only ones. So they're the exceptions. Once again, the Church of Philadelphia, as all the preceding churches have that we've studied, need a to be studied in its historical background in order to see the relevance of the letter and how it is addressed to her and the things that are said, because they're all related. Let me read here our text. In chapter 3 of Revelation, verse 7, it says, And to the angel of the church of Philadelphia write these things, says he who is holy, he who is true, He who has the keys of David, he who opens and no man shuts, and shuts and no man opens. I know your work. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, and have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews and are not, but lie indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet, and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my commands to persevere, and I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one take your crown. He who who overcomes, I will make him a pillar of the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him a name of my God and the name of the city of my God and the new Jerusalem. Which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. He was near, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The historical information about Philadelphia is important. The city of Philadelphia is um, was an ancient uh, Lydia of, of Asia Minor. Uh, again, Paul did much of his missionary work there in Asia Minor, as we've seen, and the city was located 25 mile or so, or 30 miles southeast of Sardis, along the Hermes River Valley. Today it is called Alisir. And again, they're in a little horseshoe uh, shape. They're in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. The city was uh, on the border of Mysia, Lydia, and Phrygia. These are common names as you go through the book of Acts. And the city was founded by Attalus the king of Pergamos, in 100 In 89 B.C., the king named it in honor of his brother Eumenes, whose um, loyalty had earned him the name of Philadelphus. Philadelphia means brotherly love. So Philadelphia is a city of brotherly love. But it doesn't seem like it lately. Um, The city was founded intending that it might be a missionary of Greek culture and language to Lydia and Phrygia. And the goal was fulfilled. The Lydians had forgotten their own language by AD 19. The city was situated on the edge of the Great Plain, on a 650 foot terrace above the sea level called Katstak Omani, meaning burnt land, because it was a volcanic plain. Now, consequently, it was a very fertile land, and because of that, it had centered, centered on grape growing. So it, the, the, the crops gave great yield there. And the strategic location at the junction of Trade Route um, was there leading to Mysia, Lydia, and Phrygia, uh, and had helped it to earn its title of the gateway to the east having great commercial importance. So you always have two things important in the old days when you're going to establish cities. First is roads, and then water. Very important. If you control the roads, you control the armies. If you control the water, you can stand and attack. And you have food and water. Very, very important. Now, the area was also noted for earthquakes. Remember Sardis had been destroyed once and so was Philadelphia in 17 AD. And therefore, many times, the inhabitants of the city would just flee out in the open area, even going out of the city for safety. Now, we've had occasions where there have been earthquakes in different parts here in the United States, and people have been so afraid they don't go back in for a while or whatever, or in other parts of the country. We just had big in Nepal, all those earthquakes killed thousands upon thousands of people. Um, earthquakes can be scary, um, but I'll take an earthquake over tornadoes so we can, we can have them. Um, Tiberius helped to rebuild Bull Sardis in Philadelphia, and in gratitude, the name of the city was changed to Neo Caesarea, the new city of Caesar. Later, Vespasian changed it to Flavia the emperor's family name, but in the end, Philadelphia was restored. Philadelphia was the only city that stood until the 4th century when the Turks and Mohammedans flooded the land. And the city was seized twice in 1306 and 1324 by the Salk Turks, but retained independent until after 1390 when it was captured by the Turks and the Byzantines in 1403. Now, I have visited all seven churches, and um, again, uh, most of them are just locations. They're not churches anymore. Ephesus is the most well-preserved. But um, it's interesting that at that time they were flourishing, and God was doing a great work. Now, the Church of Philadelphia um, was the youngest of all seven churches, the church, again, without doubt, was a result of Paul's um, missionary outreach that he did in his few missionary journeys from Ephesus. And um, today it is still a Christian town. The Church of Philadelphia is said to cover the period of church history from 1750 to 1950. But I think it runs till the rapture and overlaps Laodicea as I study the seven churches. They both run together and then Philadelphia is removed and, 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 and Laodicea becomes the church of the Antichrist. So they run hand in hand till the Lord removes her. Now Philadelphia is known as the missionary church, which is, uh, was possible only because of its uh, brotherly love. Now, the Church of Philadelphia represents those who come out of the dead Protestantism as we saw last week. Uh, those that depended on God, uh, his word. And the power of his Holy Spirit, in contrast to Sardis, the Reformation that ended in a state church, killed it. Um, there's been a proposal by our politicians to, um, uh, to um, require um, uh, mandatory voting. It's been brought up. Anytime you make something mandatory that manipulates the people, uh, it just it corrupts everything. Uh, You cannot force anybody to be a Christian. It's something that individuals do, and God takes care of that. Those who were willing to take the Great Commission and run with it um, by making themselves available here are representatives of the Church of Philadelphia. Now, we know that during this period of church history, great revivals occurred all over Europe, the British Isles, Africa, and South America, to mention a few. So God, in His grace, always pours out His Holy Spirit. And the ultimate one will be the book of Joel, chapter 2, that was quoted by Peter in Acts 2. But it also goes all the way into the tribulation and great tribulation, and He makes no distinction. There's going to be one of the greatest outpouring of the Holy Spirit during the tribulation and great tribulation. And and many are going to come to the Lord, in spite of the difficulties and the horrible time that will come. Um, It's amazing. God's mercy. Now, there are two interesting things to note during this period. The printing of the Bible in order to, uh, in other languages took place, which allowed the Bible to go all over. And there was a marked increase in the study of the premillennial return of Christ at the turn of the 1800s, which had been dead since the third century. So we mark these two important things, the printing of the Bible and a looking to the return of the Lord once again. And those are always important. You have your Bible and you know Jesus is coming. Okay? Studying and watching and being ready. So the Church of Philadelphia today has a population roughly about 20,000. A fourth of the population is Greek. Christians are about 2,000 with um, with a bishop and five churches in, in the area there. Now the religion of Philadelphia is the other churches, you know, because all these churches were in pagan countries and they were in the world and they had all the religions and Um, There was a God, the gods of Philadelphia were Artemis and Escalapius with their temples and we've seen both of them, both of them are uh, are, um, are sexual uh, um, gods that were worshipped through sexual practices and pagan gods. Dionysius was the god of revelry and was worshipped in um, relation to the incredible wine industry. And we've mentioned that before in other churches. And that that God is still worshiped today at spring break and every Friday and Saturday night. You and I used to celebrate him all the time. And um, that's just the way of the world. Emperor worship was established in the city between A.D. 211 and 217. And it earned the title of Neochorus, meaning Temple Warden. In the 5th century, it was given a nickname, Little Athens Because of its proliferation of festival and pagan cults. You have Mardi Gras. You have uh, carnival. All these things. They're all corrupt. They're all debauched. They're all quote, quote. And that's a new term today. People don't say I'm religious. They say, I'm spiritual. And they make no difference between the spirit of God and the spirit of darkness. When someone says they're spiritual, it could be they worship demons. And they think that's good. In fact, many of our agencies that are in police and stuff like that have depended upon clairvoyance and all that. Or people who contact the dead to try to crack cases today. Today they see no problem with that. Uh, We have mixed the two without distinction. And that's very, very dangerous. So this was the historical background to Philadelphia. Philadelphia. Now, having this background, we'll be able to examine the letter and to see the things that are stated to her. And once again, like all the other churches, to see the relationship of those words. First comes a proclamation in verse 7. Notice the identity of the recipient of the letter is the angel of Philadelphia. And once again, as in all others, the word Ancalon is a messenger of God. It's talking about the pastor, the one who ministers the word of God. It's not talking about an angel. And it's the church, Ecclesia, those called out of the world. God those out of darkness into the marvelous light a transformation has taken place the name Philadelphia gave me the city of brotherly love the identity of the writer notice is Jesus Christ once again not these are not the words of John the words of Jesus these things says and he goes back to chapter 1 verse 4 all the way to verse 5 that he takes them the chain of command we have seen God to the Son to his angel to John. And John to us. Revelation 1 1. The blessing is to the one who reads in Revelation 1 3. And the blessing was and is to the one who reads the Word of God and keeps His Word, and is very important. And the seven messages uh, were sent to all the churches. Again, each of them received their letter, but all of them received the entire seven and the entire book of Revelation. Um, The identity is once again fitting. Notice there in 7, our Lord identifies himself as he who is holy. This identity is not found in the description of the first chapter as others, yet the first two are found in the sixth chapter and all are implied in the description of the glorified Christ as it focuses on his very holiness and genuineness of the risen Christ, both in chapter 1 and in chapter 6, verse 10. He is glorified. He is their majestic, the high priest. The description identifies the character of Jesus by one of his attributes that make him distinct from man who is sinful. All men and women are sinful. All of us, whether in private or in public, we will sin. All of us fall short of the glory of God. Yet there has been a change in our life. That's not where we live. That's not where we uh, are always at. We have been transformed. God has changed our minds, our hearts, and our life has had a drastic, drastic change. And our families and our friends and those around us have been the first to witness that. Now the seraphims, you remember in Isaiah six three, cried out, "Holy, holy, holy is the Lord." The fiery ones—that's what uh, seraphims means—and they. Two, they fly overhead, covering their face. Two, their, their feet. And two, they fly, uh, declaring the holiness of God. Isaiah says, to whom will you go liken me to? Or shall I be equal, says the Holy One. Isaiah 40, verse 25. Holy One is the title of God throughout Isaiah. Very, very key. Habakkuk declares, God is a pure eye and to behold evil. In other words, he cannot look upon evil with condolence or some, oh, it's okay, don't worry about it. Habakkuk 1.13. God has to judge sin. God has to deal with sin. Either he deals with it on the person or the person of his son. One of the two, but it must be dealt with. Holy, but holy, holy is what they say. We're told to be holy for he is holy in 1 Peter 1.16. Quoting again Leviticus and many other books. For such a high priest became us who is holy. Harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, Hebrews 7.26 says. The book of Hebrews is just the Leviticus of the, uh, of the New Testament. Uh, everything in the old pointed to Jesus Christ and types and symbols and shadows. Uh, all, of, all of the book of Hebrews, there is Christ, deity Jesus Christ, God who at different times and in diverse manners spoke in times past to the fathers, has in these last days spoken unto us, his dear son, who is the full infulgence of God, by whom he created all things. Notice our Lord identifies himself as he who is true. The word true, "alethinos," means real or genuine as Messiah in contrast to falsehood. So the one who's speaking is absolutely holy, absolutely truthful, the absolutely genuine Messiah. I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father by me, he said to his disciples in John 14, 6. Truth in the world is relative and subjective. Uh, it is changing ever. It's depending on the culture, relativism, situational ethics, value clarifications. You have the political correct language today. And then the new vocabulary, the new dictionary has been put out. And bad is evil is good and good is evil. And it's, it's a whole confusion that's going on. From the uh, um, highest office down to the public school education to the workforce, everything is permeated. First John 5 20 says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given to us understanding that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In his son Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. John calls Jesus God. Many times people say, Where does the Bible say Jesus God? That's one of many. That Jesus is God. Our Lord notice identifies himself as he who has the keys of David, still in seven. Keys. Speak of authority and power to control, knowledge as well as identifying his royal office. The prophecy refers to Eliakim um, in Isaiah 22, verse 20 through 22, um, who was a steward over the house of King Hezekiah, placed over the house of David. As a descendant, he had access to the king's treasury to replace uh, unfaithful Shibna in uh, 712 BC, if you remember when we studied Um Again, all that we see here is related to the Scriptures. When John is writing, you must keep in mind, when he's writing this, all they have is the Old Testament. Okay? Uh, John is the last one to write, so some of the the Gospels have been written except for John's and and the other letters. But once again, um, when they're talking about the Scriptures, they're talking primarily of the Jews who have the Old Testament and the New Testament letters that are going out now. Um, there is the dual prophecy of Solomon and Christ, as you remember, in Second Samuel 7, 12 through 13. Solomon, the first uh, short-term fulfillment. Jesus Christ, the long-term fulfillment, ultimately. Christ is the key to unlocking the mysteries, the mysteries of life. He gave to Peter the keys, if you remember, um, of the kingdom to preach from at Pentecost, and later on, in the house of Cornelius, as uh, Matthew sixteen nineteen, where Jesus took his disciples to the city of Philippi, and he says, who do men say that I am? And they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist, some Elijah. He said, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed thou art Simon, by Jonah, flesh and blood is not revealed to you, but my Father which is in heaven. And upon this rock, that I am the Son of the living God, I will build my church. Not that Peter was a rock. He was Cephas, small stone. Petra is a gigantic stone. Jesus is that stone. And in Acts chapter 2, he preached. In Acts chapter 10, he preached to the Gentiles, the house of Cornelius. Now our Lord identifies himself as he who opens and no man shuts and shuts and no man opens. Jesus is not only the door of salvation, but he also is the door to opportunity by which we must walk through to be used by him. People sometimes they're often trying to push their way to be in ministry, to do this, to do that, or to be this, or to hang out with this person, and it's just it's not natural. If God has called you, then He has gifted you. He has called you. He has enabled you. You used to seek and to see. Where is it that you fit? What are your gifts? Where do you serve? And you do it faithfully, naturally. God opens those doors. You walk through. You don't want to break down doors because then when you're in, you're in on your own. You get yourself in trouble. All power is given to me in heaven and earth, Jesus said in Matthew 28, 18, as he sent them out. Jesus said, for without me, you can do nothing in John 15, 5. And those are basic things that will never change throughout your life, whether you are 10 years in the Lord, or 100 years in the Lord. They're just basic things that you have. They're like pillars of a building. You've got to keep them there. And so this was um, the proclamation to Philadelphia. Next comes the commendation In verse 8 through 10, as we said, there's no condemnation to Philadelphia. So the commendation here, Jesus knew what they were doing and had done in the past as the other churches. There is absolutely no condemnation to this church. She is small as we'll see. She's dependent on him. She is looking to him. She is following him. The word to know, again, is intellectual knowledge to understand and perceive as to the other churches, um, Infinite penetrating vision as we see Jesus Christ in chapter 1. He sees all things, He judges all things, nothing escapes Him. Jesus is never shocked over your life or mine. He may be grieved, but He's never shocked. He knows all things from the beginning. The works again refer to that which has been uh, going on, they are occupied in, they're undertaking, uh, as God. Jesus Christ, open these doors and they walk through them. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. We studied in Ephesians 2.10. Then notice Jesus had set before them an open door and no one uh, shut it. Now, it's it's nice to have a door, but you've got to be able to have it open. If uh, you lose your key, you're not going to get in your house unless you break a window or knock down the door. Uh, And certainly here... Um, Jesus is the one that opens it and he's directing himself exactly to them because this is what's really going on in this church. The city was the gateway, remember, to the region of the ancient world, so the door was personally for them. I have said before, you. Um, This was God's direction. The word see appears five times in the church of Philadelphia. It's translated, behold, in verse 11. But in the old King James... All four are translated, behold. In other words, pay attention. Verse 8, 9, 11, and 20. Okay? So, we're to be looking for the Lord. Lord, open doors, behold. Boom. Here's a door. Here's another door. Rather than being distracted, not even seeking Him or asking Him for that. Okay? But looking for that, expecting that. This door could not be opposed. He opens it. Now the door was sure. Notice Jesus had opened this particular door and no man would be able to shut it. It may be impossible with man. Things may look not that good. But if God has called you and directed you and guided you, then he will open those doors. We've seen it time and time again through the years here. Remember that Philadelphia was a border town with the mission to spread the Greek language and culture and fulfilled it. So, in other words, the gospel is to go into the world, to permeate the world, to change. When I came to the Lord, I, have, I used to have a potty mouth. He changed my vocabulary. <laughs> okay? He changes everything. The gospel permeates your life and it changes you, transforms you. The city lay on the road uh, of the Imperial Postal, Postal Service. Interesting. Roads were very important to get the word out. The armies of Caesar traveled in caravans and now the missionaries of Christ are going through these things. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth a son made of a woman under the law, Galatians 4.4. 4. The fullness of time, the right exact time. One language, Greek. Roads all over the world, peace. Three things were important to get the gospel out. Right on time, God sent his son. Now, this open door notice was to proclaim that Jesus was the door to the sheepfold of God. Jesus made it very clear in John 10, verse 7 and 9. The relevance of this open door is seen as Ramesses explains the geographical setting. Listen carefully. Quote, Philadelphia lay at the upper extremity of Long Valley, which opens back from the sea. On passing Philadelphia, the road along this valley ascends to the Phrygian land and the Great Central Plateau, the main mass of Asia Minor. This road was the one that led from the harbor of Smyrna to the northeastern part of Asia Minor and the east in general. The one rival to the great route connecting Ephesus with the east east and the great Asian trade route of medieval times. Philadelphia, therefore, was the keeper of the gateway to the plateau. How relevant the message in her geographical and historical setting. Uh, God, is, God is contemporary. God is perfect all the time. William Carey, as you know, the cobbler, went to India and started a factory, and he learned a dozen languages. Uh, he became professor of... A, of Ben Halle, um, Sanskrit in uh, another word that I can't even pronounce. And he um, uh, sounded the gospel across the length and breadth of the land and he built the finest college in the country, producing a brilliant translation of the Bible and hired missionaries and hammered at India's heart. Um, William Carey University is just up here in Pasadena. Uh, He was just a a shoemaker, a cobbler. And God touched his heart and just transformed him in the mission field. This was and is the open door of opportunity to spread the gospel, the mission of heaven. Um, Though with every open door, opposition may be present. In fact, this is the way Paul um, identified an effective door. And many adversaries... Are there in Ephesus? A great effectual open door has been opened to me. And there are many adversaries. Because if God opens the door, that means the gospel is going to be effective. And when the gospel is going to be effective and preached, there's going to be great opposition. Uh, Nothing ever changes. You know, Pasadena means um, the passage to Eden. And it's considered to be the gateway to the San Gabriel Valley. And if you look around in Pasadena, just drive around, there's some beautiful churches, Gothic churches, beautiful. I mean, these uh, right here, this was a gateway to the Sanguero Valley, and passage to Eden. And um, you can see at one time there was flourishing communities of believers um, to build those buildings and to fill them the size that they are. But now they are empty uh, for the most part. And uh, for one time... Like we're studying the churches here. The sangiro Valley here was on fire. Um, people were being saved. People believed in God. Uh, businesses shut down on Sunday. You didn't have Little League on Sunday and football games. You? You, you went to church. You were with your family. Uh, culture has changed and transformed and, and opposed Jesus Christ in every way possible. Now notice the reason Jesus opened up such a door is threefold in verse 8. This church had a little strength depending on Jesus Christ. These were the few Philadelphia who had depended on the Holy Spirit and, and the source of all activity in the church. Now, we need to be careful realizing that God does use people, but we certainly don't want to live in such a way to where we're calling the shots and we just become great organizers and and uh, marketing people, and, and we run the church like a corporation. Jesus is the head of the church, and he directs and guides, and we look to him, and we want to make sure that we're following his lead, first in our own lives, then secondly, as the church of Jesus Christ. And that we go only where God wants us to, do only what God wants us to do. We can't do everything, and we're not going to go everywhere. But we will do the things that God has called us to do and go where he wants us to go. And if we do that, then the others will do what God calls them to do, and God will get all his will done. So we're not here to copy other churches or to follow other churches, but we're here to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Very, very important. Now... These are part of the little flock who will receive the kingdom, that Jesus said in Luke twelve thirty two, my little flock. I tell you that he will avenge them speedily, he says. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? The answer is no, but he will avenge his elect. Luke eighteen eight. In other words, things will get so bad that people will say, well, God's not going to avenge us. Oh, God will avenge us. But when Jesus comes back, there won't be faith that he will avenge. But he will avenge the evil. Because he's God, he's holy. Numbers are nothing with God. For Sardis had few. Revelation 3, 4. Gideon had 300 men in the Old Testament. And uh, God used the 300. As you know, when we were in Alhambra, those of you who were still with us, uh, six and a half years from the time the Bible study started, we were in that cockroach-infested theater that only had one light bulb, thank God. And um, and we had we're up to about 500 or so, maybe a little bit more. And we were looking for a building. We didn't know where. We thought it would be Alhambra. And then God reduced us down to 300 and he said now I can give you the building but no one can boast and he gave us this building moved us up five miles north and he gave us this building with 300 people you talk about a miracle absolute miracle he opens the doors he doesn't need many people he just needs people that are willing to follow him and obey him And there has never been any pressure on anybody here for money, ever. It never will be. And if anybody pressured from this pulpit, you tell me. First get up and walk out. Then come back and tell me. (laughs) That's not the case here. Whenever God wants to shut this down, He's more, more than welcome to do so. It's up to Him. The Syrian army... Surrounded Elisha's house, and a servant feared in 2 Kings 6. We're dead, we're dead. Elisha said, Fear not, for those that are with us are more than those that are with them. And he opened the eyes of Gehazi, and he saw the cherubim and, and the angelic beings. Amazing. Paul said that he rather boasts in his infirmities that the power of Christ might rest upon him. For when he was weak, then he was strong. In 2 Corinthians twelve nine and 10. The strength can be a, a double handicap, a double weakness, uh, because we depend so much on our own strength. And sometimes um, we depend so much on our abilities and talents when we're young that God says, I can't use you, i got to wait till you get old. <laughs> that way you know that you it's not because of you. God knows some of the greatest instruments of God have been saved by average people, nobodies. You know, too often we think of Billy Graham or things like that or other evangelists. God wants to use you. You don't have to worry about all that. They're doing their part. You do your part. God takes care of it. Nor did the church had kept his word, obeying him. Those coming out um, to the Reformation... Into the missionary um, church here. Believe the authority of God's word. Unlike Sardis. The Errorist tense describes the definite act in the past implying testing. And this is the key. One of the keys. That you believe that this is the word of God. That this is not um, some of the word of God. That this could be the word of God. No, the Bible is the word of God. It is the only authority for life and practice. It is what we... Funnel everything through, test everything through, examine it. It is our marching orders. First Samuel fifteen twenty two, if a man love me, he will keep my words, and my father will love him, and he will come we will come to him and make our abode with him, John fourteen twenty three says. And in first Samuel fifteen twenty two, Samuel told Saul that to obey is better than to sacrifice, and to hearken the fight of rams, for disobedience is rebellion. As a rebellion is a sin of witchcraft. And he's talking about Saul. Disobedience to God's word. And so the church had not denied his name, being loyal to him, his word, his name. This also is in the error sense describing loyalty in the past. So they had been loyal and they were still loyal as the time that the letter was written. They had never denied privately or publicly their faith or loyalty to Christ, which was the result of their perseverance, compassion, and the love for the lost. And uh, that's one thing that you have to keep in mind all the time. That when you look at the world, as bad as it gets, and as much as we want to complain, that we realize God has saved us and people are out there lost. And the only thing that's going to get them out of there and give them hope is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nothing else. Absolutely nothing else. If you will confess me before man, I will confess you before my Father in heaven. If you deny me, I will deny you. Matthew 10, 33. It's while you're living that there's hope that you can repent, not after you're dead. Because of these three things, they were commended for Christ and had set before them an open door and no man can shut it. What a comforting thing it is that you can just rest in the Lord and follow your lead. And as you live your life, you can look back and say, Lord, you've been so good. You've opened all those doors. And you'll be able to see the times when you disobeyed the Lord. You'll see when, you know, maybe a door you didn't walk through. Nobody shoots 100%. But your life should be able to be seen in walking with God, using you, moving forward. Now, the, <clears throat> true to his word, Jesus, notice, always opens doors to the Philadelphia-type church to communicate the gospel uh, message. Uh, again, the motive is agape love. Jesus did it in the New Testament. And um, the Holy Spirit fell on 3,000 the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. As Peter is preaching and he saves them. The Holy Spirit forbade Paul to preach in Asia. And he opened the door in Macedonia in Acts 16. Yes, sometimes Jesus says, don't preach here. I want you over here. No, don't speak to this person. Speak to this person. Because God knows the heart of the person, right? He knows who's ready, who's not. Our Lord opens doors at at Corinth. And and Paul um, cannot... Could not be hurt. In Acts 18, he says, stop being afraid. No one's going to hurt you. I have many souls in this city. And he stayed there for 18 months established a church. Ephesus was an open door for three years in Acts 19. For a great and effectual door has opened, Paul says, and there are many adversaries. In 1 Corinthians 16, as I said, what a way to describe open doors. Many adversaries. (laughs) We say, well, God's opened the door. There's, There's been no problem. Everything's flowing together. Paul describes an effect door just the opposite. God's opened a great door. Man, there's a lot of problems. Wow, what a different perspective, huh? He says, when I came to Troas, preached Christ's gospel, and a door was opened to me by the Lord, 2 Corinthians 2.12. So he acknowledges this. In Colossians 4.3, he says, meanwhile, praying also for us, that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in chains. Now notice Jesus did it in the Reformation as you look back through Zwingli, Luther, John Calvin, Knox, bringing forth the great revivals in England, Britain, the British Isles, Ireland, America. He used common men as George Whitefield Charles Wesley, Charles Finney, Dwight Moody, Billy Sunday, and many others. Men that took advantage of the open door and were obedient to the call of God. Today, he is still opening doors to those who will go and proclaim the gospel. The church in China, an incredible example of all that is going on underground The missionaries were kicked out, and God did a special work just by himself, taking the church underground, and it's growing. It's still there. Um, Billy Graham, his son Franklin, had been faithful to preach the gospel. Everywhere they go, especially Franklin today, he don't mince words. That's good. The Jesus people that came out of the Calvary Chapel movement throughout the world, Calvary's all over. God's used it. Now Chuck is dead. It'll be two years, October the 3rd. Things change. But God's still on the throne. Those that continue to trust the Lord, God will continue to use them. We're independent. We're not a denomination. We don't make reports to anybody. We don't depend on anybody for finances or anything If God's in it, he starts a Bible study. That study becomes a church. God's in it. God's done with it, he closes it up. No big deal. Remember, this is a missionary church. And God opens doors and still does so in the gospel. Now look at verse 9. Jesus um, would abase the ones who oppose the open door. The Lord Jesus identifies their enemy as those of the synagogue of Satan, the allusion is to Isaiah, chapter 60, verse 14. Um, you also have other passages in Isaiah, 45, 14, 49, 23, Zechariah eight, twenty. In four of the seven churches, take note, Satan found, is found within four of the seven churches. Revelation 2, 9, 2, 13, 2, 24, 3, 9. Four of the seven Satan is in the church. Wow. Remember the parable of the mustard seed and the big birds, Matthew thirteen. The mustard seeds are small as a seed, seed when it grows abnormally large, the birds confuse it as a bush as a tree and they lodge therein. When the church becomes abnormally large, big buzzers lodge in it. Corrupt teachers, so called prophets. You would blow your mind the shenanigans that go on in churches. To manipulate and rip off people. It's amazing the things that happen in churches. God help every pastor and any pastor that would merchandise the people of God. That would manipulate them and use them. That would not give them the word of God, but just give them what they want to hear. It would be like you as a parent to just go along giving your son or your daughter and saying to them what they want you to say instead of what you should say and do. God help us. The Lord Jesus indicates their deceptive words. Notice this. They were saying they were Jews, but we're not. Not all of Israel is Israel. Paul makes this very clear in Romans two, twenty eight through twenty nine. The circumcisions of the heart, not outward circumcision. They were in fact lying, he says there in verse nine. Okay? John didn't say they were misspeaking. He says they were lying. I gotta remind you because that word isn't heard in our culture anymore. Nobody lies, they just misspeak. Wow. The Lord identifies His victory over the enemy, notice. Jesus would make them come and worship at the feet of the church of Philadelphia. The word worship there, proskuneo, means to kiss the hand or touch the ground with their forehead in reverence and homage. But not for conversion, but here is for judgment. The word appears 24 times in Revelation. The book of Revelation is the worship of Jesus. You wouldn't think you would find the word worship that often in the book of Revelation, 24 times. (laughs) Now Jesus would defeat their opposition. Jesus would humble them to their knees before the church and worship at their feet. Every knee should bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, Philippians 2 says. Right now, by grace for repentance and forgiveness, when Jesus returns by force for judgment, there's a big difference. Now, notice the Lord Jesus said that they would um, know that he had loved them by his open door, by his victory over them. It is Jesus who can alone triumph over people. If you try to defend yourself, you'll do a bad job. Now, it's very obvious some things you have to deal with right away and stop people or say something that's very obvious. But when people are in the attack over your life or as a Christian, it's It's continuous. You need to take them before the throne of grace and have God deal with them. Let God defend you. Peter says, when the people speak evil of you, you and I have only one responsibility. Are you ready for it? To live in such a way to prove them wrong. Wow. How distinct is that? Look at verse 10. Jesus would exempt the church from future testings. The reason was due to the fact that they had kept the command to persevere. They had kept... In the errorist tense, the historical fact, depending on Jesus to do what he commanded, they had been disciplined to yield to the Holy Spirit for obedience. The word persevering means steadfastness, constancy, endurance. In the New Testament, it is used for the characteristics of a man who has not swerved from his deliberate purpose and his loyalty to faith and piety by even the greatest trials and sufferings. Literally, it is the word of life, endurance. His is the source as they depend upon him. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now notice, still in 10, the Lord would keep them from a specific time of testing. Don't miss this. It would involve a definite period of time, indicating by the phrase, the hour of trial. Underline that. It would include the entire world. Note that implied by the phrase, which shall come upon the whole world, literally, earth dwellers. You and I are not earth dwellers. We are heavenly citizens. We are children of God. We are saints of the Most High. Yes, I still live here. I have an earthly passport. And I am um, both Mexican citizen and American citizen because Mexico never gives you up. They give nobody up. Um, um, But we are pilgrims and sojourners. Now, this promise could not refer to normal trials, testings, and tribulations, because Scripture refutes it. Jesus said, In the world you shall have tribulations. be of good cheer. I have overcome the world, right? 16, John 1633. So Jesus is talking about the normal trials we go through the world. This is very specific. Paul, in his first missionary journey, exhorted the converts to continue in faith and told them that how he was, um, he as well as they must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God in Acts 14.22. Paul gets these guys saved and he says, by the way, we must enter the kingdom of God through many tribulations and trials. Wow, bummer. When's the last time you had an evangelist say that after an altar call? James tells us the believers to rejoice when he falls into diverse trials and testing for they are the perfecting of his faith in James 1, 2, 4. Peter tells us the word not to think of strange when fiery trials come upon us for we partakers of Christ's sufferings in 1 Peter 4, 12-13. John says he is our companion in tribulation in chapter 1, verse 9. So those are all speaking about the regular things we go through in life even as horrible as they may be, even persecution. But this is speaking about a specific hour. A specific trial. The reference here is to the time of the tribulation known as the 70th week of Daniel or Jacob's trouble in Jeremiah 30, verse 7. And if you've been with us, we studied Daniel's prophecy, of the seventy week, you know exactly what I'm talking about. The word from is ek, meaning out of, not through, as some teach, for the church will be removed at the rapture. Jesus said then, John 14, 1 through 4, Romans five nine, First Thessalonians five nine. We're not appointed to wrap but the salvation of our Lord Jesus Christ. First Thessalonians four sixteen and seventeen. The church is caught up, harpooned, removed. Our Lord spoke and identified the great tribulation in Matthew twenty four, Mark thirteen, Luke twenty one, Revelation chapter six to nineteen. Nowhere is the church in there. The only woman you see in Revelation from six to nineteen is a woman who's pregnant. Don't insult the Lord. His bride is a virgin. The pregnant woman is Israel who gives birth to Christ. That's the only woman you see that apart from the heart of Rome. We're not earthly dwellers. Ephesians says we are, our citizenship is in heaven and we're pilgrims and sojourners in Philippians three eighteen through 20 First Peter two eleven. The only ones to be sealed in the tribulation are the 144,000 Jews. The only ones to to be preserved through the tribulation is Israel, Jacob's trouble. Jeremiah 30, verse 7, Daniel 12, 1, Revelation 12, and Matthew 25, 15, very, very clear. The Antichrist appears, and it is certain, when the rapture of the church takes place. Russia will attack Israel. Ezekiel 38 and 39. God will destroy five-six of that army, and then um, the um, the Antichrist will appear with all the solutions, and um, he'll establish his kingdom. False peace the first three and a half. No peace at all the last three and a half. A horrible time. Those in the fifth seal are slain in chapter 6, verse 9. And they cry out to God, how long, how long? Kick back. There's a few more of you to be killed before we get it all put together. Wow. This was a commendation to Philadelphia. Next comes the exhortation. Look at verse 11. The church is reminded of the soon return of Christ. Great exhortation. The Lord Jesus tells them, Behold, I am coming quickly. The word quickly means suddenly, speedily, without delay. The same word appears seven times in the book of Revelation. 2.5, 2.16, 3.11, 11.14, 22.7, 12, and 20. The word behold, once again, gives emphasis to the seriousness of what is saying. And it says, Now hear me out. This is key. Pay attention. Behold. Very important. In the gospel, he said, Verily, verily. Truly, truly. They were to see it as a warning to be ready and not lose out an open door window, a window time, if you will. There are things that you did in your life that as you look back, you know, it was a window time. If you wouldn't have done it, then you would have never done it. There wouldn't have been the time afterwards. And sometimes you can also see that there was a window time you didn't take advantage of and it's closed forever. It won't come back again. God's open doors are window times. Those window times are big and they start closing. And there comes a time when they close and then he'll open another one. But this one's gone. So we have to be listening to the Lord. They were to be reminded of his sudden return because um, mocking will always occur. 2 Peter 3, 3-8. through Where's the promise of this coming? All things have continued as they were. The uniformitarianism philosophy of evolution. Wow. Four of the seven times repeat the same statement. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have. Let no one make, uh, take your crown. Revelation 3.11 Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps my words, the prophecy of this book. Revelation 22.7 And behold, I am coming quickly. And my reward is with me. To give to everyone according to his work. Revelation twenty two twelve. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Revelation twenty two twenty. Now, do you believe He's coming? Four times He says, it, "Quickly, suddenly." Be watching. The church that has for its proclamation the soon return of Jesus Christ is a beacon. A Light of Hope, Philadelphian Church, missionary, loving, reaching out. The motivation is love for Jesus that longs for the soon return of him. The evidence of the genuineness of both proclamations and love is with holiness. And proclamation of the word of God. You're waiting, looking for Jesus. First uh, John 3, 1-4, everyone who has His hope is, uh, purifies itself even as he is pure. And so one fifth of scripture is related to prophecy. Do you realize that? Twenty percent of the Bible. One third of that one fifth is regarding the second coming. From Genesis to Revelation, his coming is foretold. Jude verse fourteen and fifteen, Revelation one seven, two twenty five, three eleven. From Genesis to Revelation, I'm coming. What would make us believe that He's not coming? If he came the first time and fulfilled over 300 prophecies, what would make me believe that he's not coming the second time? On what basis do I believe that? Notice the church is admonished then to guard what they possess in 11. And the phrase hold fast means to hold with a hand and not be discarded. The word is used of Ephesus for Jesus holding the seven stars, which are the ministers of the churches in Revelation uh, two one. the word is used of Pergamos, who was holding fast to his name in Revelation 2.13. And the word is used for those who were holding to the doctrine of Balaam and Nicolaitans, bad doctrine in chapter 2, verse 14 through 15. And the word is used for the few tyrants to hold fast what they had till he came in Revelation 2.25. Then notice the church has given the purpose of the abomination, that no one may take your crown. The implication is unmistakable. There is always a danger of losing and suffering loss if we are careless. If there isn't a chance, why all the warning and exhortations throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament? Colossians 2.18-19, through 19, Colossians 3.1-4, 2 Timothy 4, 7 through 8, and many, many others. You warn believers, you don't warn the non-believer, they're lost, they're deaf, they're death. You give warnings to the person who's alive, who has something to lose. The reason for the admonition is that no one take your crown. Notice that the word crown Stephanus is used of victorious games of celebration a laurel wreath, kind of the Olympic Games. Paul uses it. In First Corinthians nine twenty-five, and the word is used for all five crowns of the promise to the believer at the bema seat of Christ. The crown is not for works for salvation, but it is a reward for the reason why we did the things. Did I do them out of love—love love for Christ, love for people? Then I have a reward. If what I do is not motivated by God's love, then it's worthless. And that will be in the bema seat of Christ. In First Corinthians three thirteen through fifteen. Again, the motive in four or five is a heart and, um, Christ will be the judge. Some of the ways we can allow people to spoil our crown are very, very common. Listen carefully. We allow the pressure of the day, um, to have us compromise. We allow the influence of others to do things for the wrong motive. Um, we get away from the truth of the word and we corrupt it or ourselves. We do not walk in the open doors. Jesus opens and we walk in doors that we want. We do not depend on the strength for service, but our own. And you can keep the list going. Many other things. So this was the exhortation to Philadelphia. Last as all of them comes the application in 12, 12 and 13. Look at 12. The declaration is an invitation with promise and reward like all the others. The one receiving the reward is the overcomer in all the churches again in the first three this came after the call to hear to Thyatira and Sardis and now Philadelphia it is before it is a timeless promise it is the one who abides in Christ Jesus who is the overcomer John 15 1 through 6. Um, it is the faith of the Christian that overcomes the world in 1 John 5 4-5 through 5, the person who will reward is Jesus I there in verse 12 The Lord will do several things for the individual. Mark them well in 12. First, the overcomer will be made the pillar in the temple of his God. In the ancient world, they would print a person's name on a pillar and erect it in his honor. Paul tells Timothy that the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the church in 2 Timothy 3.15. Peter, James, and John were said to be pillars of the church by Paul in Galatians 2.9. The overcomer will be as Christ, which the church is a reflection of through the New Testament. The pillar speaks of permanency, stability, strength in the temple, nows, the inner sanctuary, the holy of holies. We see this in Ephesians 2, 20 and 22. But secondly, nor order the overcomer will have permanent residence with God. To go out, no more. It speaks of permanence, perfection from wavering, a total rest and peace, significant when we recall that the people constantly ran out due to the earthquakes. You're not freaking out anymore. You're resting. Okay, No more earthquakes, no more testing, no more trials. You're there. It speaks of the belonging and, 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 and the promise of Jesus to his disciples. Notice, thirdly, the overcomer will have the name of his God and the city of his God, the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven, uh, from God. Uh, Book of Hebrews 12, 22-29 speaks about it. Revelation 21, 9, 22, 6. One cannot miss the parallel of the city that was founded with the intention that it might be a missionary to culture, the Greek culture, and the language of Lydia and Phrygia, which lost their language. They were overtaken from it. And so the same here with Philadelphia. They shall see his face and his name shall be on their forehead, Revelation twenty two four says. 144,000 Jews have their father's name in their forehead, as we see in Revelation 14.1. It speaks of ownership, privilege, authority, character, faithfulness. But fourthly notice, the overcomer will have Jesus right on him. The new name of Jesus. This is significant in that the name of the city was changed by Tiberius and Vespasian, if you remember. The name of Jesus is called the Word of God, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, in Revelation 19, 13, 16. In that day, he shall be called the Lord to sit canoe, the Lord our righteousness, Jeremiah 23, 6. It speaks of a personal individual an eternal relationship with jesus christ isaiah fifty six five then notice the declaration is an invitation to anyone. There must be a willingness to listen as an individual if you find yourself any less than what Philadelphia is or I. There is a sense of responsibility accountability to what is being heard. There is a culpability to every person for listening. To take the way of repentance if need be. The words, he who has an ear, let him hear are famous words of Jesus. Take heed how you hear, what you hear, over and over again. And then notice also the declaration is an invitation to obey what the Spirit says to the churches. The word hear, cool again, the faculty of hearing, not one that's deaf. The idea is that of hearing with keen, sensitive hearing to obey. Literally, let him accurately and effectively hear, just as the other churches They all get the same application. The obedience is not limited to the message of the Church of Philadelphia, but all seven messages, as we have pointed out. The word churches is in the plural. The Spirit is the speaker in the person of Jesus Christ, the comforter, the one that brings him glory. So this was the application to Philadelphia. Let me close with a poem. Listen carefully. I think that I shall never see... A church that's all it ought to be. A church whose members never stray beyond the straight and narrow way. A church that has no empty pews, whose pastor never has the blues. A church whose deacons always deek, and none is proud and all are meek. Where gossips never peddle lies or make complaints or criticize. Where all are always sweet and kind and all to others, false or blind. Such perfect churches there may be, but none of them are known to me, but still we will work and pray and plan to make our own the best we can. <laughs> if you're looking for the perfect church, please, when you find it, don't join it. You'll ruin it. <laughs> Remember your life And remember your little strength. Remember he opens doors. Remember he's coming. The message to the church of Philadelphia is to keep trusting and walking by faith through the open doors because he's coming suddenly. The message speaks of a local church in John's day. The message speaks of a period of history, 1750 towards about 1950. The message speaks of a type of church that will exist through the church age from Pentecost to the rapture. And the message speaks of a type of Christian throughout the church age. And so, once again, we get to take the exam. We get to correct our own paper. Father, thank you for your grace, your love, your goodness. We love you, we thank you. Speak to our hearts, Lord, and we thank you for your mercy and grace and your kindness that, Lord, none of us would be able to confront you if it wasn't by your grace. So we left everybody here, Lord, listening and those over the Internet, you would minister to us, Lord. If there's anyone here who doesn't know you, Lord, you would speak to them. As you're praying, if you're here, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. You might be over the Internet. Right where you sit, you can accept Christ Jesus by faith. If you recognize that He is God who became man, died for your sins and rose from the dead, and that you are a sinner, and that God's wrath is upon you, then you can call upon Him and He will save you right now. This is your prayer of repentance to Him and He will save you right where you sit. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.